Hey there, welcome to the Faces of Marketing podcast, where we talk about the human stories and lives of different people and perspectives in the marketing profession and entrepreneurs and movement makers. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm here with Monica Enand, founder and CEO of a software company here in Portland called Zapproved. Welcome to the show, Monica. Thank you so much, Ryan. It's a blast to be here. Yeah, it's great. We're sitting in your office here, and I got a view from the Pearl of some traffic on I-5, <laughs> and <laughs> it's uh, pretty awesome to see your journey and where you are. Um, so, yeah, so we've known each other for about a decade. We've been in the Portland tech entrepreneur scene, and... Um, and I kind of think of you as more of a like legitimate technology entrepreneur, whereas Ooh. I run a digital agency. You're not only do you have the software engineer background, but you started a pure software company and it's uh, it's done amazingly well. Um, and I've looked up to you uh, because at a time where my company went through a near business death experience, you powered through in the recession some pretty scary times and you kind of came out the other side in a really cool way and you've had you and I have had um similar timing to like our journey around equity and things like that but definitely different ways that we got there and so I um definitely excited to like dig into some of those conversations as we go through the podcast well thank you so much and absolutely that uh, respect and admiration is mutual for sure yeah yeah I'm so before we typically in this podcast we go right into the chronological like where you grew up and all that and we'll get to that in a second but um, just to start the podcast off with a little bit of, of drama, um, that <laughs> how scary was it in, you know, you started Zapproved in 2008 or so, or, yeah. and that's exactly when the recession started and probably around 09, 2010 yeah. is when it got like, Hey, we're starting to get customers, but that's, you know, I also employ a bunch of people and I'm about to run out of money. Like what was, how, how on the brink were yeah. you? No, it, it was, I mean, it was a pretty scary time. And, and I saw, you know, I sometimes wonder if I look back and just think, had I led a charmed life up until, until then, you know, is scary always is just relative. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to go to a great, college I went to Carnegie Mellon and studied electrical and computer engineering and that was super hard but but also um, you know led me to Intel where I was in a group that was really fun to be part of a lot of smart people I did well I moved up the ranks at Intel so to be honest I had never really faced failure and uh, I think that was the first time in my life where I think failure was Kind of the staring odds. you in the face. <laughs> Absolutely. Was, yeah. I mean, the odds were much more for failure than they were for success. Um, and that really kind of shakes you to your core and turn kind of has you you end up really stripping away lots of parts of your behavior and your personality and really figuring out it's your core, like what you can what you can dig in and what you can really do. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a pretty transformational thing. Um, yeah. Well, cool. We'll, we'll dig into that in a little bit. So um, with that said, so we're here in your office in Portland, Oregon, um, but you grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina in yeah. the South. Yes. Um, and you're Indian American, correct? I so am. 
what was it like growing up in the South? I went to school in the South in Virginia, at mm-hmm. University of Virginia, but I grew up in D.C., so yeah. similar. We, we both ended up 3,000 miles away after college at Intel. We both started there and yep. all that, but like, I just find the culture back East is so different than here. And so, yeah. yeah, what was it like growing up in Charlotte? I mean, there was a fusion of a lot of cultures in my growing up. Like you said, I'm Indian American, and so... Um, you know, we were very firmly rooted in kind of Indian culture and participated in the Indian community in Charlotte, which was really wonderful, actually, in many ways. For me, mm-hmm. um, there was a youth organization. We had a little Hindu center where we would go and do all kinds of activities. I had kind of a school set of friends, and then I had my Indian friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that was really healthy and really good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it creates, you know, complications because the culture, you know, Having those, uh, you know, the nickname is that we are kind of American-born confused desis, which um, the confused part is really that you're trying to balance the the culture that you're living at school and the culture that you're living at home and, you know, those very differences. And that was very real, especially as a teenager, you know, getting into things like dating and proms and all of those, you know, making choices about careers or making choices about schools or what you do. Very, very different um, you know, and then the Southern culture, you know, I really loved growing up in the South and I miss it. Uh, you know, I, I go back and visit mm-hmm. my parents and uh, my mom and my brother and sister-in-law live there and I have friends there. Um, but I, 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 I've really become a, a good Portland citizen mm-hmm. and, and really got used you, to that. Like, what I love about the South is people value just slowing down, taking the time for conversation and... Um, I don't know, people value people there, you yeah. know, and there's a lot of relation. It's yeah, a very, very relationship. Yeah. 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 So you, you do develop that relational value of like talking to people, getting to know people, um, you know, trying to, trying to make every interaction that you have with somebody a positive one. And, you know, people genuinely try to make you feel better when you walk away from them than you did when you started the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's like an important quality. Mm-hmm. So how did your parents end up in Charlotte? Um, my dad was a textile chemist. Um, and so the textile industry in this country really fell apart while we were growing up in the 70s and 80s. Um, and so he moved around from factory to factory. So we moved around a lot when I was very young. Um, and then, you know, the textile, all of the textile industry kind of fell apart. And my mom very entrepreneurial of her, opened a little gift shop. We were living in Charlotte for one of those stints. Um, And he was working in a factory, and she just anticipated that he would get laid off and that the factory would shut down. And so she opened a little gift shop, and they started – she was able – she actually did it kind of in secret, um, hid, stashed away money without his knowing, started it, actually was able to make it successful when he finally realized it was successful and that he did get laid off. Uh, they actually opened a few more little shops and uh, ran them, and we stayed there. Luckily for me, I was able to stay there because I went there in middle school, and so I was able to stay there through high school, which I think was a good thing after having moved around so much mm-hmm. before that. What, were the, what was the name of the gift shop? Elite Fashions was the Ooh. first <laughs> gift shop, but then they opened. They started opening gift shops in uh, hotels, like in the Sheraton and the Hilton Hotel. Uh-huh. Um and running those, you know, just like the little shops that have all the things you might forget uh-huh, for uh-huh. travelers. Cool. 
Okay, so you're when you were a little girl, um, playing in the in the cul-de-sac. Like, were you in the suburbs of Charlotte, or yeah? And so you in a neighborhood and you're playing like were you outside playing or were you reading books or all like what what kind of stuff were you into yeah when I was I, I was definitely an outside person um you know I think everyone was I'm, I, I guess you know nowadays people kids spend more time inside we were just all kicked out on the, the street and it was I, I just remember it being a blast um I don't think I became very studious, actually, until closer to high school. Um, so I got the chance to run around and do all kinds of things. My parents were pretty focused. They were immigrants. I was the fourth child. Um, my dad was in a career that was, you know, uh, going through lots of lots of layoffs and shutting down. So they were pretty focused on just getting food on the table mm -hmm. and or in having a roof over our heads. Mm -hmm. um, so there there wasn't a lot more of they didn't have a lot more to mm -hmm. give me. Um, so since you spent a lot of time with your siblings, are you pretty tight with them? Or? Yeah, they're yeah. quite a bit old, older than I am. So by the time I was 11 years old, they were all gone to college. Um, kind of like aunt and uncle roles a little bit? Uh, you know, a little bit like... Or mom and dad. Like, a little bit like, like, like second substitute. moms and second dad. Yeah, okay. definitely, especially for my brothers, okay. uh, my sister as well. They all kind of ended up taking care of me, I think. Like, were, you, were they so overprotective you couldn't date anyone, you know, that kind of thing? Um, no, actually, they were a little more. Obviously, they had also gone through some of the things. The nice thing was when you have immigrant parents and they don't understand what it's like to grow up in this country, I had this sort of buffer generation of my two brothers and my sister who had grown up in this country. And I was able, that, that's, I think, why they became such important forces in my life because instead of going to my parents and saying, you know, what should I study, what should I do, they were really ended up being the ones to kind of guide me in my life and career. And I, th and I think they had a better understanding of life in this country. So it was, it was cool. nice to have them. So were you, like, so you said you did a lot of outside activities, but were you into sports or, you know, what kind of things carried you into, into high school? Um, definitely in high school, I participated in some sports. I was never very good at them, but I think, uh, I participated on, the, I was on the yeah. soccer team. Yeah, cool. Um, and, uh, and then I was, uh, actually involved, really involved in a service organization. Um, and I actually, my senior year was president of this service organization. Um, so I was, I was pretty community minded. Mm -hmm. And I think even in the Indian community, I ran a radio station, uh, Serious? <laughs> yeah, an Indian radio station on Sundays, playing Indian music and reading the news, uh, you know, kind of from India. Um, so I, I think I was community. I, I loved being part of a community and yeah. being, uh, involved and organizing people. And what, what kind of nonprofit work was in this service organization? Like what? We would do, I mean, I guess it was more like at a high school level, we would do little fundraisers mm -hmm. for the local community, cool. um, you know, different things for different or local organizations, mm -hmm. very local and kind of focused also even on the high school, like raising money for things in the high school. Mm -hmm. I just, I projecting some of this on me, but I can see how, because I did a bunch of that in um, middle school and high school and stuff, and now you you know super involved in Catlin Gable and mm. some of the stuff that they do here as well as Tech Town Diversity yeah. Pledge and and you're you're pretty plugged into the community here so I think it yeah a lot of times it starts and I'm did your parents like what gave you 
the impetus to get involved in community stuff? Or was it your siblings? You like, know, it's how- really funny. My parents are not, I mean, my mom is. I think my dad never really, I don't think he really had the luxury of ever mm-hmm. being able to think about anything else mm-hmm. other than trying to trying to provide for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so he never was interested. In fact, when I was interested when I was younger, he was discouraging of it. You know, he would go, oh, why do you spend your time on those things? I don't even know what that's going to, you know, what that, what good is that? Yeah. Um, but my mom was always really encouraging and kind of said, well, you learn. You when I, Whatever you do with the community, whatever you try to do, you learn something. And I think that's definitely true. Um, and then my oldest brother, he's actually very community minded, loved being part of the the, the community and organizing things. He actually organizes like an India Day festival in Charlotte now. And um, so there, I mean, I, I had some role models that, that loved mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, even like you mentioned, I've been involved in the school activities and, and kind of entrepreneurship with students. Mm-hmm. And every single time I've done it, I've walked away. Think, I mean, there are moments where I go, oh, how did I sign up for all this work? Um, but then uh, there's always that after when you get it done and you have that feeling of, oh my gosh, uh, I'm so proud of what we did. I learned a ton. I grown as a human in so many ways. Um, so I, I think it's been really valuable. Yeah, it's funny. We were, right before we started the interview, you and I were talking. I, I took my family to see the movie Blinded by the Light. And yeah. the dad, similarly in this, was like working at uh, the factory gets laid off and his son gets a pro bono job at the the Luton Herald which is like outside of London um and it's you know it's unpaid and the dad's like that's that's horrible yeah. like, you know and the son is just <laughs> oh like 16 years old he's like oh on top of the world and all that he's like <laughs> you need to like what's what's happening what's in it for you right now yeah and this notion and I th- I'm bringing this up because I think it is a total luxury and it comes from privilege to think of, but it's also cultural to get engaged in the community, but, and network. And some of the things that we, um, uh, kind of instill in all of these college students with emerging leaders is like, whatever you invest in your time into networking, it comes back to you tenfold, but Absolutely. it, but it's not always direct. Like, and it can, it can come up, a year, two years later, yeah. um, it's such a, it's almost like we need to get out of our like dinosaur brain and, yes. and into this more like the future is all about social connections and Absolutely. It, yeah. So, well, I've, you know, and I've thought about this in the context of immigrants and, mm. and, you know, immigration is being frequently talked about mm. and having immigrant parents, you know, watching my dad work so hard, my parents, both my mom also, but also they, they came from that scarcity mindset. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's, mm-hmm. and probably, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I'm mm-hmm. dying to see it. Yeah, and I know it's yeah. about a immigrant family. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that scarcity mindset is just kind of, you know, they, they can't really right. wipe it away. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I think it's like, y- you really have to think about, like when you say the payoff, what what's the time between now and the payoff? I've found the payoff comes at totally times you don't expect it's Mm -hmm. not even really a payoff it's kind of like thinking about karma Mm -hmm. and just okay I'm going to invest Mm -hmm. but you know things that I invested in my kids went to a little Montessori school uh, a 
friend and I chaired the school auction and we still work together today. She was one of my first angel investors. Mm. And it's like, you know, you never know what what connections you are going to make and when they're yeah. in it, when it's going to be something that changes your life. Yeah. Um, it builds so much trust when both sides know there's nothing in it for them in the moment. And it's right. just about that chemistry and connection and kind of like the more beautiful elements of human nature versus our, you know, absolutely not so beautiful elements. Well, I find that about business and I'm sure you, you and I have mm. gone through a lot of similar experiences. Yeah. And I think building a company in Portland, one thing I learned is paying it forward. Mm. There were definitely people who were very clearly paying it forward for me. Um, right. They were just, had been through experiences and were willing to share and willing to kind of guide me. And, you know, we, our team, uh, Chris Bright and I, we take every up in that way. It's just sort of, like I said, karma. So um, I always ask this question in every podcast, uh, but, um, you know, when an adult came up to you as the 8-year-old or 10-year-old or 12-year-old Monica um, and said, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what was your immediate response? Yeah, I, I think on the younger end of that scale, 7 or 8 years old, there was kind of a running thing in my family because all of my parents were, you know, and my, I have two older brothers and older sister and they came from India in the late sixties. And then I was born here in the U S and so the, the sort of running joke in our family was that I was the only one who could be president of the United States. So they used to say, well, you're the only hope in the family to be president of the United States. You're which, still our only hope <laughs> oh, no. in the country. We've gotten that desperate. I know, but, um, <laughs> but, but I think when I was little, everyone used to say that and I don't know I've sometimes wondered like was that little joke sort of really confidence building I think you know I quickly discovered I was not going to be president of the United States and when I got a little older um, you know I don't think anybody asked me what I wanted to be and I don't think they thought I should think about it it was just not something our family did everyone in our family went to school for computer science or electrical engineering or something very very similar um and that we we did that because that was what we believed would make all of us successful and it wasn't about whether we liked it or not i just don't remember anybody ever asking me what i wanted to do there's just <laughs> expectations that oh, you absolutely. would do a certain thing oh yeah we do well, engineering. what did you want to do i don't because no one ever asked me i don't think i even had that thought and and also you know in high school I was good at math and I was good at science so I think that's just what I always thought I would do I I just don't think there was even a time of exploration honestly in college there was a moment there where I was like I don't know if I like this um but everyone was like well that doesn't matter just keep going um so I did <laughs> So it's fascinating because before this interview, you and I were chatting about our daughters, you know, mine going to college in a year and yours um, starting up at Dartmouth. And um, I'm sure it's pretty different for oh, your daughter, you know, because I was going to ask you before you answered that of like, well, Carnegie Mellon, you know, that is an engineering type of school. Yeah. Like, did you always know that you wanted to be in tech? But you already answered that. Yeah. Uh, it's just what your family did. It was. And because I got into Carnegie Mellon and, you know, my brother said you should just apply to electrical and computer engineering because it was the hardest sort of major to get into. And then once you got in, 
there was no thinking about it, really. Um, I'm really happy that my kids have the opportunity to think hard about what they want to do. Sometimes I think they think a little too hard and overthink it. My son is going through the, a little bit of that right now. <laughs> and sometimes I do think, wow, it was a simpler time because we just powered through. And even though there were times that I thought I didn't like something, what I discovered later is once you get some mastery of something, um, the joy comes from accomplishing something and feeling that sense of satisfaction or mastery or being able to overcome hard things. Like, I think that idea, you know, while I didn't raise my kids to think there's only one job and you have to pick that, um, as my parents kind of believed, um, I mean, there were two jobs that could have been a doctor or an engineer. Right, Those right, were the right, two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those were the only two choices in my parents' mind. Um, and I didn't raise my kids to think that. There was something good about just saying, hey, it's hard. You're going to still do it. And you're meant to do hard things. And you're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. You'll get through it. Um, I think that's I've had to summon that multiple times in, in life. And it served me well to to have that experience. Yeah, I'm reading this book now um, by David Brooks. He's a New York Times yeah. columnist, um, and it's called Double Mountain. Oh. And because like uh, the first mountain is success in life, and the second mountain is significance. Um, oh. And one thing that I had never thought about until now is, you know, in American culture, we're so much about freedom of choice, freedom of you can do anything you want, yeah. and, you know, all that. And that is like crippling with anxiety, especially yeah. you graduate from college, you've majored in whatever you wanted to. And now the realities of like, what are you going to actually do right. is like really, really scary. So, um, I just, there's gotta be a happy medium there in does. there somewhere. You know? Yeah. I mean, the, I think it's a hard question to, to put to our kids to say, find your passion. Yeah. I think that's an incredibly difficult thing. Cause mm -hmm. what if you don't know what your, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't feel like I understood what my passion was mm -hmm. until late 30, until I started Zaproot, mm -hmm. until I realized that entrepreneurship was a thing mm -hmm. and that I actually could do it, mm -hmm. which took me very late, you know, relatively late in my career to figure out that that I could even do it and now I realize wow that is my passion I love businesses and I love building them mm -hmm. um and I love how they grow um but I didn't know that so yeah I was gonna ask this so when I ended up right after college at Intel I really my motivation was that's going to get me to Portland and employ me. And then I can do all this fun stuff once I'm here. Um, but when I was there, I was just like, Oh, this like innovation stuff in tech, like this is like the things that consumers consume and how we live our life is so kind of, um, influenced by technology and it's, it's so helpful Absolutely. and all this stuff. And so I just wonder, before you got to your, you know, mid to mid thirties, when you started as approved, I'm sure there were elements of technology that like you're, that you, you know, got passionate about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I loved working at Intel. Um, you know, I, I came not knowing much about Portland at all. Um, but knowing that Intel was an amazing company and that they were working on this really cool microprocessor. Um, and I wanted to be part of that. Uh, smart people all around. I felt like the dumbest person in every room, which I think is a good thing to try to be the dumbest person in every room um, and that you're in, that you spend large amounts of time in. And I think, uh, you know, it was it was really an exciting time. Uh, 
to, to build something that, you know, if we look back on just even the last 20 years and how much the world has changed and how much a part of we that we were in building faster microprocessors or whatever it is you, you know, you did. Yeah. Um, so that's, so you, you go off to Carnegie Mellon and there are moments where you're like, I'm not sure I'm into it, but then you had success and that was a driver to, um, to kind of power through and, and get to a place to where you then go to Intel. Um, what, let's start shifting into Zapprove because that was such a foundational um, moment for you. Yeah. You know? um, that, the origin story of how you started Zapprove, all that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I only quit Intel because I was having kids I I had had my son was 18 months old and I was pregnant with my daughter and I realized my husband worked for Intel and we were both working crazy hours and we realized this was like not a way to how live. long were you there I was there about seven and a half okay. years mm -hmm. um and so we we both said hey one of us is gonna have to quit and we talked about it a little bit and decided that I would I would sit, take some time off take care of the kids I, I sometimes look back on that and wonder if I had never done that, would I have ever left until I don't know if I would have because I really did love my job there. Um, but having that break away from Intel kind of uh, and spending a few years outside of it and then just wanting to observe technology and what was happening and staying looking at it sort of from afar that was what got me excited about software as a service what was happening with the cloud and entrepreneurship i had kind of gotten bitten by the entrepreneurship bug in that time just reading different stories seeing different people either uh friends that i had met you know at carnegie mellon and at intel or my brother also did an entrepreneurial journey um and seeing that and realizing that was super cool um and so when I finally decided, all right, I'm going to take the plunge, which was, as you pointed out, 2008, um, quit my job. I, I had gone back to work, actually, for another startup uh, to learn a lot about. And I learned a lot about startups and how they worked. And then uh, decided to quit that job, take some money out of my, our savings, and uh, go ahead and give it a go. Um, and started Buildings Approved, recruited a few people to help me. We worked, in, you know, we all worked together in my house. Um, and then the recession hit, and it really became very clear that this was uh, not the best time to choose. <laughs> you know, while the economy was falling off a cliff, um, in retrospect, you know, it ended up being a really good thing for us, uh, though it was really painful. One of those times, again, where you have to go, wow, I don't know how we got here, but we're going to have to power through because um, this isn't the place I want to be at this moment. But if we can power through, it's going to lead to something good. So one of the places where we're a little different is when I started my company, I was like 25 or 26. And, um, I always say that being really naive is like very helpful Absolutely. in becoming entrepreneurial, <laughs> but I didn't have that much to lose either. Like I, um, it was, I just gotten engaged, um, no kids. And I, you know, I could, you know, fall back and, yeah. and go back to work. I mean, you could definitely do that, but you have kids. Yeah. Um, you have, you know, your mid-career. Yeah. Uh, and your, you know, kind of prime earning years yeah. at a safe company like Intel, all of that. And so it's just like, 
I guess those become really big motivators. Like I've got to make it because I've got to do this for my kids, but it's, that's almost scarier of what you did. Well, I have to say, um, the one thing about my situation is because I was a stay at home mom with a husband that was working at Intel and a really supportive husband, um, you know, maybe it's like a Sheryl Sandberg thing saying like, you have this really supportive spouse that makes all the difference. It really did because we had learned to live without my salary. Now we, we had not learned to live with me drawing on our <laughs> savings on a regular basis, which is what I did for going the first negative. Time. Yeah. Going negative was yeah. something new that I was doing and I knew that I couldn't sustain that, but we had learned to live and he was very supportive. You know, he was very much like, I do love, he loved working at Intel. Uh, he loved his job. He, he loved the technology that he was working on. So he said, I love it. I don't want to quit. I don't want to do anything different. So if you want to do something and try something, go ahead. Um, so I was, I was lucky in that way that I had some buffer and some, some feeling of, you know, it wasn't about food on the table. Yeah, that's, that's huge. And one of the things that I connected with when I heard parts of your story on, uh, I just recently aired on KGW, which was Mm -hmm. pretty cool, uh, is that it wasn't, you know, obviously your husband is the rock and the key of that, but you also had other family members, like your brother step in financially when it, you know, and I also had that support and it was just, it's like so um above and beyond the call of duty and yeah. it's so heartwarming when family members step oh, in and just trust you and you know well and that's where you yeah. feel like you know people you know you do get recognition and it feels good it feels good especially for my team when we get recognition mm-hmm. but i do recognize the privilege that i have mm-hmm. like i definitely came from a more privileged position than a lot of entrepreneurs sure. that are trying yeah. to i did have that support when i almost ran out of money you know from drawing negative on our account my brother stepped in and gave me money. Um, I had a mother-in-law who actually helped take care of the kids so that I could travel a bit mm-hmm. um, and supported you know, my husband. Mm-hmm. So I had all kinds of support, and mm-hmm. I really do recognize that, uh, mm-hmm. that privilege. It would have been impossible. Yeah, I mean, I feel like without a supportive family or safety net, entrepreneurs have to have really good partners and investors and like co-founders create a family basically you know yeah and create a you know it takes a village to raise a kid it takes a village to raise an entrepreneur you know and that and that company and um if you don't have it biologically you have to create it those are the people i really admire i've met a few of them and think wow that's crazy yeah doing amazing things awesome so um how like <laughs> you're not a lawyer um legal software like yeah. how did that happen because it wasn't yeah. like honey i've got this great yeah. idea <laughs> like we're gonna do legal software it's gonna be amazing you i'm know? super passionate about yeah. litigation support yeah, yeah. yeah no no yeah. it doesn't <laughs> it didn't work that way um i did become pretty passionate about software as a service and built approved which was originally just a, a tool for keeping people organized um and I was really fascinated by the big amounts of money that were going into that and what the economic change, especially given that mobile was on the rise and knowing that we'd have to have thin clients and data would have to be in the cloud. So like those were the trends I was seeing. I don't think entrepreneurs can time the market, by the way. I mean, clearly I 
I was bad at timing the market, <laughs> but I think you can look at trends and say, okay, these are trends that are irreversible. Mm -hmm. And you position yourself, a good entrepreneur positions themselves to take advantage of, you know, ride that wave when the wave crests and, mm -hmm. you know, then ride like mad. Um, and so things like the growth of data, the, the fact that mobile was there, you know, it was clear that things were going to the cloud. So being cloud-based was really important. We went to beta with Zapruder in August of 2008. We got great reception all kinds of people were using it we had thousands of users actually across all industries across right? all yeah because you didn't have a niche i remember yeah. meeting you um at that point and i was just like oh this is cool but i i can't quite place <laughs> yeah. like how i would use it you yeah. know yeah and people were playing with it and using it for different things but i was in this sort of exploration phase of like hey we'll just put something out there and see i had some hypotheses about different industries and how they would use it before we built anything but i was trying to validate that and then also trying to explore and keep my mind open to other things but then in september lehman brothers failed the whole you know the market started to crash and it became really clear that when we looked at our users so you know in the in the winter of that year 2008 we sat down and did an audit of who all was using the software and why and we it became clear we were gonna have to pick one thing be the very best at it because that was picking a niche and being really good at it was probably the only way to make it because we weren't going to raise large amounts of money and then having that be non-discretionary spend you know something that was somewhat recession proof and in you know, litigation is typically counter-recessionary. Um, now, it wasn't in that recession because that recession was so deep, but it, litigation didn't dip as much as anything else. And also, we knew that with the world, if you know that the world is changing in terms of the volume of data, and you also know that part of our litigation system is that you can't delete data that's potentially relevant to a case. That's a fundamental tenet of the judicial system, right? Mm -hmm. So those things aren't going to change, and the problem's going to go from, a hundred, a thousand boxes of paper to terabytes and terabytes of data growing exponentially and living in all different locations and all different types of data, whether it's text messages or video or pictures or all of the different things that people, that corporations are going to deal with that you know is discoverable, Slack messages, you know, just mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. So you know the complexity is, get, is continuing. Mm -hmm. There's no reversing that. Mm -hmm. And you know that the fundamental tenet of our judicial system is that data you know data relevant to the case has to be preserved and turned over to the other side so at least it felt like it felt like this was the right horse to bet on because it was clear that you know it, it had solved a big was, problem yeah yeah absolutely and th but other folks have come into the space oh, yeah. since you've kind of validated it and all well, that. Well, there were others in, oh, it. in it already yeah, but you just took a more modern technology approach yes. to it yeah okay. we didn't build anything new and we still aren't we're really deploying it in a different way and really the the other difference is you know because most of the industry was focused on law firm spend mm -hmm. because that's where the money was um they really tuned their products to be easy for law firms to use we really focused on the corporation um mm. and that gave like us general a, a, counsel at a, intel or exactly at, an yeah. in-house counsel yeah yeah it, it many of the big companies mm -hmm. uh, can, using our product. But we focused on the in-house counsel and putting ourselves on the side of that person. Mm -hmm. You know, legal is not an industry that has been known for efficiency, mm -hmm. the incentive structures for mm -hmm. efficiency when you're, you know, charging by the hour. Right. It, it's a complicated 
structure mm -hmm. to get a lot of efficiency out of and, and it's been that way for sort of too long mm -hmm. but it's at a breaking point just mm -hmm. with the growth of exponential growth of data mm -hmm. e-discovery is a large driver of cost and litigation mm -hmm. so we knew that okay this is unsustainable mm -hmm. there is going to have to be a forcing function for the efficiency motive and aligning ourselves with the corporations who are going to push that efficiency um, mm -hmm. felt like the right thing to do so that's the kind of different take that we took on it. Now I get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so you're now 100 and something employees. And About 150, 60. 150, 160, bursting at the seams here. Yeah. And re recently got acquired by, I forgot the name of the larger Vista company. Vista Equity Partners. Okay. Oh, so they acquired, they, and they usually have a four to six year window to add value. And yep. Yep. That's about right. Yeah. Uh, and, but you're still, a lot of times, um, there's a lot of myths of private equity and all that, but very often you don't see the entrepreneur about a year later, but you're still here. Yeah. So it, <laughs> you must still be liking it. Yeah. I'm, I'm learning a ton and I've learned for myself that I like to be constantly growing. And so, you know, I'm really thankful to be working with them and have the them behind me. You know, when I when I first when I first talked thought about doing a transaction with them, I had kind of a lot of the same mm. impressions of private equity and they invited me to a CEO summit and I met tons of founders. So mm. like I actually met spent some time with Reggie Agarwal who's the founder of Cvent oh, yeah. and is mm -hmm. still with Cvent. He was on the public mm -hmm. market. They bought they acquired his company off the the public markets mm. took it private. Mm -hmm. um, so there were a number of founders there and I realized you know, that that team really understood what founders bring to the party. And they were very excited about working with founders. And the other thing I realized is at the size company that we were, we weren't huge. Mm -hmm. Their their old playbook wasn't going to work. So they were absolutely interested in growth and mm -hmm. interested in growing the company mm -hmm. and focusing on top line growth and not focused necessarily mm -hmm. on cost cutting. Yeah, and stuff. exactly. Yeah. Or roll ups or I mean, they have those playbooks, but mm -hmm. that's not what they're doing in, in mm -hmm. this fund. This is a, a part of a new fund that they started. Mm -hmm. OK, I'm going to go backwards a little bit. Um, you were talking about data being the core of your mm -hmm. business model. This is it's really an entrepreneur podcast, but we also talk about marketing. Yes. Um, and we in digital marketing are all about data and those insights and how that um, informs better marketing campaigns and things like that. Would you, does data in your marketing department for how you market's approved to these corporate in-house counsel folks, do you, do you use that there? Absolutely. And how, and how does that work? Absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing that we did early on was, and I think it was because we weren't attorneys and we were trying very hard to understand the market. Um, we ended up doing a lot of curriculum marketing. So we would read case law, uh, write about it and write our summaries and our positions and point of views and send it out. And it turns out we were doing it because we were trying to educate ourselves. It turns out that many of our customers were really appreciative of that kind of cliff notes or for dummies versions because they have to stay up on all of that you know there's continuing legal education and credits and you know it's a moving mm. it's a moving art Credit, or science yeah. or I guess yeah. art um, you know you have to stay current mm -hmm. and so they were really we got a lot of following because of that curriculum marketing mm -hmm. and then we started to learn and study like hey 
the people who are usually interested in these topics are the ones that seem like they are sophisticated in their uh, in the way that they think about uh, innovating about you know because going from a really what this is is going from a reactionary like fire you know fire department kind of waiting for the fire mm -hmm. sending out a fire truck which is really costly for mm -hmm. corporations and really trying to be proactive and turn leak the the business and the, the GC's office into a business center, mm -hmm. you know, that, that has regular, anticipates things and has regular, treats litigation as a regular business process. So you could prove to those folks that if you, if they used Zapproved and were proactive, it was a hundred times less expensive. Absolutely. Okay. And when you say a hundred, it's even more. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it turns out that the ROI, because there hasn't ever been this efficiency motive and the, the play is always kind of the same uh, for every case, mm -hmm. having, being proactive and thinking about your case early on, especially when data is growing at the volume it is, really saves costs downstream. Mm -hmm. the, the, the opportunity for creating ROI is huge. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, we, in our marketing, because we were putting out all, all this thought leadership and mm -hmm. curriculum marketing, and we were participating and mm -hmm. interviewing people, kind of like you are, doing webinars with mm -hmm. customers and thought leaders, um, we started to realize who were the people who had a propensity to buy and were ready to take on sophisticated technology to help to try to, try to uh, move their organization forward. That's super cool. There's very few companies that directly use data like you have in your marketing campaigns, like, and that you were speaking the same language as your clients yeah. like with how you formatted and all of that. But I find there's so much talk in all these mar marketing conferences you go to and all of that stuff around big data and how to get smarter and all of that, but it's often siloed or used very ad hoc and not integrated into an entire marketing program, but it sounds like you've done that here. Yeah, we've really focused on kind of uh, where do we spend our energy marketing and marketing and I mean, really, yeah, the marketing is really together. trying yeah. to make sure that the salespeople are spending sure. their energy where they can be, where it can be fruitful. Yeah. And that's where we spend, that's where all the data analysis goes is when are people, you know, do we believe every corporation should be using our product? Of course. Is every corporation ready right now? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. So what are we using the data for? We're using the data to figure out who's more ready, mm -hmm. base, basically based on buying behaviors and buying signs. Pro propensity model. Propensity to yeah. buy, yeah, Got absolutely. It. Cool. Readiness. Yeah. So um, just a couple last questions. One, um, inspiration. Uh, <laughs> who in your life, and it doesn't have to be uh, an entrepreneur or anything like that, but someone who really inspires you? You know, I, I, I've been thinking about this question for a little while. and so There's I think, a lot of people out there. So it's, it's kind of a hard one to narrow down. Well, and the thing I've learned over time is that it's changed for me. You know, I probably would have said in my younger days, I might have said, you know, Andy Grove or, um, you know, I might have said Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or somebody like that. You know, somebody, a technologist that I really admired. Um, although the older I get, the more I discover that, I think it's, you know, people that have done the work to figure out how to be comfortable in their own skin. Mm. You know, so recently I I've been I read her book and been listening to like Michelle Obama's been on and I you know, just it's not about it's all about just 
the fact that you've done enough work to understand who you are mm -hmm. and get really comfortable in your own skin, I think that's like my definition of success anymore. Um, and I still struggle with being comfortable in my own skin. Um, and I, you know, it's constant, like it's a constant struggle. Mm -hmm. I never had that feeling of even being comfortable in my own skin until probably maybe four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I got tastes of it. And then it's been this like continuous journey to try to be that more often and kind of authenticity. And, you know, I, I read Brene Brown and I think she's awfully inspiring. And so, you know, thinking about like how to really get to your true authentic self when you're an overachiever and you have, you know, you're used to getting accomplishing things and you draw some, you know, self-esteem from that. And you have some confidence, but you also have some imposter syndrome because you're trying to do something new that for you and blaze new trails. And, you know, I think that whole thing has just been where I've been spending my time. And when I meet people that, that feel really comfortable, authentic th themselves, that's what I find really inspirational. I just had this thought as you were talking where, you know, you mentioned some amazing women mm -hmm. with Michelle Obama and uh, Brene Brown. I find that when you, the more comfortable in your skin you get, and when I look at these leaders, it's almost like it becomes a little bit of a target for other, I'm thinking a little bit of Trump right now, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like, but to, for other people to kind of attack and like throw you off your game and you have, and it's, it has to be for Michelle and Brene, like really hard to not, uh, like, you know, when they go low, we go high like, yeah. to live into that because oh, you're, you want to attach to like, no, like that's not how I am. Like this is me, but you, but it's just got to take incredible self-discipline to stay comfortable in your own skin and not give energy to the attackers. Oh, absolutely. Know? And you know, you mentioned your dinosaur brain or your reptilian brain. You know, we all have that scanning for threat. Our amygdalas are always, you know, everyone's going to have that flight or flight, flight or fight or flight response. Um, but it is a practice thing. I do think it's a practice thing. And I think, you know, it's one of those things you're going to always aspire to and never, ever achieve mm -hmm. because you're never going to be 100% good at that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you have to just keep trying. Yeah. yeah. No, that's cool. I, I, I love that response because. I don't know how I would answer it, but I would. I definitely think it's changed. I, it, part of that question comes from a dinner table conversation that I've had with friends, where it's you know who's your hero, and it came from a place of like when I had my near business death experience. Yeah. It was um, I was in a place very egocentric and mm -hmm. all that, and so my heroes were the you know, the software, like the people who've made it big. Yeah. And then the more I've grown self-aware and know what I value, it's like, oh, both my parents are entrepreneurs. Like my, that's great. Like my hero is my dad for his work ethic and for like principles and all that. And for, you know, my mom yeah. for like, you know, just being so dynamic and so magnetic and all of that and um, really loving and all that. Aww. So, but it's, it's so different than, you know, 10 years ago where my inspiration, my hero were, were kind of, 
people I didn't know, but right. the, like fame, yeah. you know, versus, you know, who your heart and soul attaches to. Absolutely. You know? And yeah. realizing that it's dangerous a little bit to have heroes because everybody is human. Like mm -hmm. they are all just people mm -hmm. and you can't create too much expectation from anybody um, because it's not fair. It's not fair. Yeah, absolutely. So last question. Um, and so the premise of this question is, um, there's often a life moment that happens. Um, sometimes it happens in high school and college right after, um, where it's either really, really hard or it's, um, something that is life giving and it creates independence and gives you a ton of confidence. And in any of those scenarios, it builds perseverance, grit, all of those things where it's not a surprise to, you know, um, be where like, huh, it's, it's not surprising that I, Monica, am CEO of this company and I'm super proud of the team here and all this stuff. Like, can you describe a moment or a part of your journey that that you can look back to? Like, oh, this was pretty defining for yeah. me personally. I think, um, you know, we talked about a lot of the privilege that I had as an entrepreneur and I'm really grateful for all of it. I do think, you know, and I don't know if it's fully gendered, um, but I did do think many times in my life, and it, I'm sure men have this too, you know, people talk to you about what you can't do. Mm. Um, well, you can't start a company because what do you know anything about that? You can't, uh, you know, even my mom would say, you know, and she was a business owner who started her own business, but she would say, well, girls don't do that because they get pregnant, you know, and, and we grew up with that kind of, uh, you know, you're going to have to have babies and, and someday you're going to have to do these things and um, you can't do everything that boys can do. And, and my parents very much treated my two brothers very differently than they treated. They, all, they thought all of us were smart, but they very clearly knew that like there were things boys could do that girls couldn't. Um, and I think, you know, you just there's messaging that constantly feeds in your head and you just live with that. And I think it was I was working for a startup locally um, by a male founder and you know, the founding team, there were three founders and all three of them were men. And, uh, I got to, I was working really closely with them and I got to know them all, all three really well. Mm -hmm. And there was just a moment where we were discussing something around a specific decision for the company. And I knew I was right. And they were arguing with me. One of them, two of them in particular, but one of them very vehemently, the CEO. Um, and I knew I was right and he was wrong. And he insisted that I was wrong. And he insisted that we do it his way. And he was the CEO, so you know you have to disagree and commit. And at the moment I disagreed and committed, I thought, oh, he doesn't know what he, he's not, he's not right about everything. Now, now again, like I said, you can't make anybody a hero. You can't make anybody, because they are just human, right? And he had his reasons for thinking. And I think at that moment I realized no one does know everything. And I don't know why. Like if you wait till you know everything, you're never going to be able to do something and no one else is waiting. So why am I waiting? And that was the moment I said, okay, I think, you know, I'm going to help you finish this transition this, but I want to start my own thing mm -hmm. and I want to, I want to go for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was a really pivotal moment. Like, you know, there's all these brain studies, but like, I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing, what I was wearing. You know, you remember all the details of that moment where the light bulb goes off and you say, screw it. I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? I can identify on the male side of that, that cause there's data that shows like, um, applying for jobs. Women will often, yeah. um, 
self-select out if they don't meet all of the requirements of the job dis- uh, description. Whereas a guy would be like, oh, I've got like two out of the 10. That's good. Like, <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. yeah. And I am exactly that way as a guy. So I, yeah, and I have two sisters. I don't have any brothers. Uh, like I said, my mom's this uh, super strong, uh, you know, entrepreneur and, and uh, role model that mm-hmm. way. Uh, and one of my sisters is an entrepreneur. So, but I, so I haven't had that conversation with them, but for me, like it was, I knew I could do it even though I knew nothing wow, about, that's great. and that was, <laughs> it's great, but it is fully male privilege and all, like, I just fit exactly into that, you know? Um, You're so, so awesome for recognizing <laughs> that and knowing and educating yourself as much as I know you have and how hard you've worked. But um, I so think, I but so now you. that you've, so that was 11 years ago that you had that yeah. kind of aha moment and have, if you were to be in a conversation as say the chairperson of the board with three founders mm-hmm. um, who are all male, would you like lean in a little bit stronger and say, you know what? I know you think you're right, but, uh, we really need to go this way. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to have these moments of confidence, right? Because we all live in this place where we're always doubting ourselves and worried. And, um, but there is this moment of like, I know I'm right and I know that's the right thing to do and I want to go do it. And if you don't want to go do it, that's your choice because this is your company but I'm going to do it. <laughs> and, so. and you're so humble that I think when you, I would imagine when your team does hear you with that level of clarity, they're like, okay, we know what we're doing. Does yeah. that happen here? Or? It does. But you know, the, <laughs> you have those moments of confidence. But one thing I've learned in the last 11 years is that, um, Things are not always what they seem and things you have to be skeptical of yourself all the time because there are times where I have thought I was 100% right and I made the wrong decision. But I don't think, you can't let that paralyze you either because I've had that happen and I've looked back and thought, wow, I was so confident I was right on that, whether it's a hiring decision or a market decision or an interaction with a customer and you know, or a negotiation. You're 100, you, you just feel like you're 100% right, but... Um, yeah, you can still be wrong. It's great. That's why it takes a lot of trust. Trust is built on vulnerability. So being able to be vulnerable with your team is where you can create those trusting environments, where you can create healthy conflict. And when you can have healthy conflict like that, that's where all the growth happens and the magic happens. And that's where, like, you know, you walk out of the meeting with this great sense of satisfaction that you just had a wonderful, deep conversation and considered all the aspects and really thought things through. So few companies create that healthy conflict culture because it's initially it's like we want to bring on pain, you know, (laughs) and humans don't want that, you know, but it's the benefits are huge if you can create a scenario that is vulnerable that you know, that. And I think, I don't know how you feel because you also worked at Intel when you were young, but I felt like because, you know, I was 20 years old when I started working at Intel and Andy Grove was the CEO then. And I remember him walking the halls. I remember having a brown bag lunch with him. Um, and that guy created conflict like nobody's business. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I did get really comfortable with that conflict Mm -hmm. and that kind of, now 
I don't think that was always role modeled in the healthiest ways right. yeah. um, at Intel. And I think there are healthier yeah. ways to create yeah. conflict and create psychologically safe environments and where people yeah. feel. To do it with grace. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, it's so awesome having this conversation. I always love getting to know my friends that much better. Well, and thank you. Thanks so much for being on the show. All right. Awesome. All right. Cheers. Cheers.